But now let's go over and say hello to Professor Thomas Naylor. He is one of the country's most uniquely independent thinking economist. He is a professor emeritus of economics, Duke University, where he's taught since 1964. He's also the founder of the Second Vermont Republic, which is a nonviolent citizens network and think tank advocating for the breakup of mega nations, including the U.S., Russia, and China. Calls for the creation of small, democratic, affluent, socially responsible nations with a high degree of environmental integrity. Now, he has written numerous articles in academic and popular publications, including the New York Times, Science Monitor, and The Nation. Among his many books is Affluenza, the All-Consuming Epidemic. Nice to have you with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Before we look at the gradual increase in voices advocating session from the U.S. within certain states and under certain conditions, such as your state, Vermont, I'd like to address a fundamental question that no politician or media talking head, left or right, is seriously asking. Not Democracy Now!, not Keith Urban, none of them. And that is this, and this is my concern. Is America able to be fixed in order to provide sustainable governance that serves the well-being of its citizens? Or, as I believe the nation already has passed a tipping point whereby the country is no longer governable, so I would like to begin our conversation with you addressing these two points of view. Uh, Well, um, unequivocally, the the answer to the question is... uh, uh, the empire is unfixable. Our, our position is that the U.S. government has lost its uh, moral authority. It is owned, operated, and controlled by Wall Street, corporate America, and the Israeli lobby. It is completely unsustainable from every dimension, economically, politically, militarily, socially, morally. Um, we certainly saw in the debt debate debacle that it is, that, that is ungovernable and it is therefore unfixable. It is, it is beyond repair. And so, to me, many of these organizations like the Tea Party are a complete joke because they, the underlying premise of the Tea Party is that it's fixable. All right, I appreciate that. You've written that the U.S. today promotes, quote, affluenza, technomania, cybermania, megalomania, robotism, globalization, and imperialism, unquote. Every time we hear a politician end a speech with God bless America, for me at least, it precludes the assumption that the United States is a united nation. Aside from the patriotism that permeates the support of our troops um, and our demolishing the Middle East, or the myth of Washington's shining light on a hill beaming freedom to the world, then chants of USA, USA at international sporting events, it seems to me that the only unifying factor in the U.S. is private financial and corporate domination over people's lives. Corporations and banks are unified in exerting control to increase profit, and and on the other end, civil and human rights... uh, Regarding religious sentiments and race and distinct cultures in different regions, urban and rural, inequality and poverty do not fit into their discussion. It's a matrix of unconsciousness within which everything else in people is sublimated to believe a myth that the U.S. is a united nation. So if you had 
to provide a summary of the State of the Union based upon the illnesses of affluenza and cybermania and globalization, imperialism, and others, what would it be? Wow, for starters, um, why don't you move to Vermont and help us uh, organize the Second Vermont Republic? Oh, uh, that's uh, that's uh, one of the most brilliant uh, uh, analyses I've ever heard of the situation that we're we're in. You, you ask for one word to depict what? Not one word, just your overarching ideas about how we can re-examine the myth that we mirror every day in talking heads that we are a United Nations. Yeah, I think we have to somehow um, step back and see that the uh, uh, you know that the that the whole myth of the empire is is fundamentally corrupt uh, to the core. Uh, the idea of uh, of American uh, uh, exceptionalism um, is it's, it's a lie. It's a complete uh, uh, fraud. And I mean, all you have to do is look at our foreign policy, which is based on full spectrum dominance on imperial overstretch and, and might makes right and, 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 and just be like us. And um, uh, I mean, that's an integral part of, um, of, of the problem from, from our perspective. All right, good, fair enough. What was particularly unique about the Bush White House that spurred public interest in considering secessionist ideas in certain states and in your estimation, do you feel the Obama administration further advances the need for states to seek independence or lessens it? Fantastic question. Well, really, three things put the Second Vermont Republic on, on the map. One was Bush's response to 9-11, basically the war on, on terror. Uh, second was his invasion of Iraq in, um, in 2003. And third was his uh, re-election in 2004. Those are really the defining moments that I got our percentages in terms of support uh, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of registered voters up to around 13 percent in 07 who said they would support uh, uh, secession. Um, it's been a, an uphill struggle since uh, Obama announced and then, of course, was elected in 2008. And the problem for us comes from the political left, because the, um, I mean, Vermont is thought to be one of the most left-wing states in the United States. And so the typical Vermonter uh, thought that Obama uh, was a, represented the second coming of, uh, of Jesus Christ and surely walked on water. And the problem is that it's taken two and a half years for left-wing Vermonters and, and the political left in the United States in general to figure out that really Obama is simply a smirk-free George Bush who is replicating all of Bush's evil policies in, in, in spades, spades. But the problem is that, that Obama is much smarter, much more articulate than Bush, who is an idiot, and, and therefore Obama is infinitely much more much more dangerous. Okay, well, I also, I, I had this argument with myself today. Um, I asked myself, what would happen if today you had alive Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and, uh, and Malcolm X, and they all uh. believe that the wars 
that we are engaged in are immoral and illegal and wrong, and therefore they were demonstrating outside the White House. And others came forward and said, will you also speak out against uh, inequality and disparity? And uh, they said yes. And the fact that we vote for people and one person, one vote doesn't count anymore. It's whoever has the most money wins. We'll speak out for that also. So they're in front of the White House. And inside you have a luncheon, a luncheon of the President of the United States, but also former Secretary of State um, Condoleezza Rice and former Secretary of State um, Mr. Powell. And they're all there. And Secret Service comes over and says, Mr. President, we have some agitators. We have some (laughs) protesters outside. Uh, what should we do? And the president says, well, of course, that's a homeland security. That's national security. We have acts. We have the Patriot Act. We have plenty of ways of dealing with these people. <laughs> and, and so deal with them as we have to, as we always do, and which will not change. Well, but these are some people who you may want to listen to. So he gets up, and they all get up. And there in the White House, as the window opens, you have Condoleezza Rice and Colin Powell and, and Barack Obama looking out at Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and Gandhi. Now, what do you think the conversation would be? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> For starters, you're the most uh, creative interview I've ever uh, in, in, encountered. <laughs> I mean, what, what? I mean, maybe you've just defined the null set. What? What would they talk about? It, there might be just uh, just stony silence. Uh, that, that would be my first uh, first instinct. I mean, they have no, they have absolutely nothing um, in uh, in common. I mean, they have I they have one thing with, in common, namely, all but one are African Americans, and the other one's Indian, a person of color. And how many people believe that Barack Obama uh, would save the nation and save them because he could identify as a person of color? Yeah. And has he protected those who are the minorities, who have been right. historically segregated and, and, and used and neglected and excluded? And that's for each person to determine for themselves. It's just a concept went through my mind. Let me go to the sep- uh, separate issue here. Many listeners will likely have heard of Vermont and Texas calling for secession to become a separate nations. Of course, this was uniformly in the mainstream media. It was attacked and, and, and mocked. Keith Oberman would mock it repeatedly. But many will likely never have heard of Novacadia, a secessionist joint venture between Maine, New Hampshire, and Canada's four provinces on the Atlantic Ocean, and then Cascadia, which would include British Columbia, Washington State, and Oregon. And for most people, these appear to be pipe dreams that could never come to pass, never even have a form to be intelligently discussed. But secession movements are not uncommon in American history. There was the main seceding from Massachusetts and, of course, the Confederacy. Is secession justifiable at a constitutional level? And since you're perhaps more conversed in these secessionist movements than anyone else, what signs have you witnessed that lend to you the belief that that might happen at some point in the future? Are we speaking now politically, or do you want me to talk about the constitutionality? Both. Okay. Well, let's see. maybe let's start with the constitutionality, because part of the problem is that Lincoln really did a number on us 150 years ago. He, con- he convinced both the left and the right 
that secession is, uh, you know, is immoral, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, and only a crazy person would embrace uh, uh, would embrace uh, uh, secession. And so that's that's part of what you're dealing with. Uh, m- most Americans don't don't recall who pe- people who are opposed to secession uh, that we the, the country was born out of secession in 1776. Essentially, it was a, a secession from uh, 13 colonies from, uh, from 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 England. But in terms of the constitutional issue, um, uh, there are three arguments that you know, kind of right off the top of um, tip of my tongue, come come to mind. Uh, first of all, is the uh, the Tenth Amendment, which essentially says if the Constitution does not uh, uh, restrict some activity or forbid some activity, then it's implicit that it's left to the states to decide, and the Constitution does not forbid um, uh, uh, secession. Uh, second of all, there were three states: uh, uh, New York, Rhode Island, uh, and Virginia who, when they came into the Union originally in 1776, had escape clauses, which said uh, that they had the option to, uh, uh, to, to split. Well, if those three states have, uh, have, have escape clauses, what about the, um, uh, you know, the other 47 of us? And the third uh, constitutional argument is that even before the Civil War began in 1861, uh, there were about a dozen states, one of which was Vermont, uh, who had nullified the Constitution, and by that I mean they have said uh, thanks but no thanks to some particular law, that it's in violation of the state Constitution, and that they, f- they f- therefore will not uh, uh, abide by that. Well, if a dozen such states could nullify, don't we all have, um, have that right? So I think that the constitutional issue is really um, uh, on pr- quite sound ground, but ultimately secession is, is really a question of, uh, uh, of, of, uh, of political will, the political will of the group who's wanting to secede uh, in, you know, up against the, uh, the organization from which they want to secede. And uh, it's, so that, that's the ultimate uh, uh, issue. In terms of um, kind of, um, of political uh, uh, feasibility or kind of the, of, the, of the process of what would be involved. I mean, one of the, one of the problems is that the United States has been in a kind of a state of denial over secession since 1865. Uh, there are no laws dealing with secession. The Constitution doesn't deal with it. If, if it was Canada, we're in a quite different situation because in in 1998, um, Prime Minister Chrétien uh, asked the Canadian Supreme Court in Ottawa to give a ruling on whether or not um, a province could uh, secede, and the answer came back, yes, it's not a pushover, but here's the paradigm. We have no such luxury. But the best legal scholars that we've been in touch with suggest that, that the process would, would look something like this that uh, the first thing you would need to do is for the legislature to call for a statewide convention proportionate to the population. And so we have uh, 150 uh, uh, representatives and 30 senators, so let's say uh, 200-person statewide convention uh, to consider only one issue, articles of secession. And you would need a, um, you know, at least a two-thirds vote because we're talking about credibility, about acceptance, 
not only of the people in Vermont, the rest of the United States, and the rest of, of the world. Well, armed with that um, decision from the state convention, um, the governor or someone from Vermont would then uh, head to Washington, um, present this to the president, the vice president, the secretary of state, anyone who would receive it, return to um, to uh, Montpelier and then uh, start pretending that we did it, stop paying taxes, uh, no longer honor the U.S. laws, and at that point maybe we would uh, pray a lot. Fair enough. Well, your state of Vermont balked at Obamacare simply a gift to the insurance industry is all it was, and ruled in favor of a single-payer health coverage, one that I certainly support. Uh, My final question is I'd like to hear your assessment about this, and can a state that makes such a decision, therefore, I would assume, excluding themselves from federal funds for health care, be able to pull something like this off in our national recession climate? Well, it's interesting you mentioned this. See, the, the problem is I get lots of phone calls from people congratulating me on Vermont moving towards a single payer, but but it's what they don't realize. It's a complete joke that the governor of the state, uh, Peter Shumlin, got the legislature to pass this bill last spring, in which, for starters, nobody's committed to anything. It is simply a kind of rough framework of a, of a single payer system in which there's no discussion of how much it's going to cost or how it's going to to be paid for, and it's turned over to a commission which conveniently will not report back to the legislature until after the next gubernatorial election. This thing, so-called single-payer health care, is a complete sham because no one is committed to anything. Okay. I appreciate you taking this time to share with us today. And, My pleasure. And I hope that at some point the left and the right have the integrity to invite you on, if for no other reason in their mind, to try to discredit your argument, which allows you a form then to share your points of view. We do not have an open and free press in our society and a lot of self-censorship and this kind of mawkish elitism on the, leaf and on the left and this kind of dull arrogance on the right prevents these type of discussions. Fantastic. All the best to you, Professor Thomas Naylor. Thanks for having me on. Professor Thomas Naylor, Professor Emeritus of Economics, Duke University.